This episode of Under the Current is sponsored by Wavetable. Yeah, we know we produce this podcast, but hey, better us than some random company trying to sell you overpriced towels and bedsheets, right? Anyway, beyond high-quality Egyptian cotton and soft, luxurious Belgian linen, figuring out better ways to communicate, learn, and collaborate have become more valuable than ever. Maybe you're ready to go and monetize your particular genius or are seeking new ways to build your audience. Perhaps you know your clients or team members deserve online interactions that go way beyond webinars and long, drawn-out meetings. Whichever way you're going, Wavetable have got your back. We create interactive learning experiences with some of the world's leading brands and creators, and we're delighted to announce In Session, a place for you to develop new and engaging ways to share your ideas and expertise with the world. Our range of toolkits, courses, office hour sessions, and live interactive workshops will help you build your skills in experience design, content creation, facilitation, and so much more. And there's not a dull webinar in sight. To become part of the future of learning, just head to wavetable.net. You're listening to Under the Current, a podcast that tells the real stories behind the life and work of creative people who come at things in unconventional ways. In each episode, we go below the surface to better understand the highs, lows, and messy middles that are part of the journey. My name's Howard Gray, and I'm your host. From his first release on XL Recordings in 1990, through to being called the Baron of Techno by legendary BBC Radio 1 presenter John Peel, to his most recent project with classical musician Mathilde Marcel, and continuing to eschew trends in an industry that has a new flavour of the month almost every week, you can't pin down Dave Clark as just another dance music producer and DJ. Shaped by punk, rap and acid house, in a youth where he ran away from home, sleeping in car parks and on beaches, today he plays techno with the flair and ferocity of a hip-hop turntablist host his own stage at the enormous Tomorrowland Festival, and is close to publishing the 800th episode of his White Noise radio show that has dozens of FM partners around the world. He's opinionated, erudite, and by his own account, has an anarchist streak a mile wide, all of which shine through in this wide-ranging conversation. We get into what punk represents, building long-lasting relationships, what the future looks like for new artists in the electronic music scene, and why he's maybe a little misunderstood. Two warnings about this one. First, my new audio gear hadn't arrived when we recorded the episode, so my recording is a bit echoey. Yes, ironic when interviewing someone who's constantly at the forefront of audio technology. More importantly, Dave is loud and clear. Secondly, there is some strong language, so listener discretion is advised. It's time to go under the current with Dave Clark. So we're recording this in the middle of November 2020. A lot of countries have tightened up COVID restrictions, including the Netherlands, where you are. And given you live in a city that is known for its international attitude, its international culture, its amazing international airport, I just wanted to get a sense of what the mood is right now in Amsterdam, maybe for, for you, the community you're in, and more broadly. 
we're lucky being in the Netherlands that a people take it pragmatically but seriously um so they go oh yeah it's a bit turdy the situation but we have to go with it um but they take it seriously and the reason why i say it seriously is because i was in paris um over two weeks ago now and it was just before they announced their lockdown and you can tell that it wasn't taken seriously there at all and that they needed to have an absolute militant lockdown to get the R number below one. Whereas here, uh, they did progressive kind of lockdowns. And so, you know, like six weeks ago, maybe perhaps, uh, they closed down the restaurants and the bars. And you notice an instant difference here, but the majority of restaurants and the bars here were actually very respectful to already the restrictions. Um, but they closed those down. And then when you take the restaurants and the bars out of Amsterdam, it changes the atmosphere here quite dramatically. Um, you know, I did like a double sushi extravaganza on the, the two days before lockdown so that I could actually sit down and enjoy some sushi. But it, it changes everything. So people take it seriously here. It's, it's quiet. Um, you walk around the streets at night and it's exceptionally quiet. Um, no one is sort of partying or taking the piss or, you know, having, uh, you know, lots of friends around. Um, so you get the feeling that it's respectful here. And because of that, the lockdown itself doesn't have to be as militant as somewhere like Paris, for example, or some places in the UK. And I'm thankful for that because it enables, you know, the first lockdown was quite traumatic in as fact that even though I knew it was happening, I knew it was coming, I was predicting it on my own Facebook, I think in February or March. Um, but when it came, it was still like, oh, oh, it really needed to happen after all. It came, it was traumatic. But even then with the traumatic first lockdown here, it was still pragmatic because you could go out and you could go out and have a picnic as long as you don't talk to anyone else. Uh, you could do all these sort of things which actually made life here bearable. Um, so the shops are still open here. Um, so there's no sort of rush on toilet paper anymore or any of that sort of stuff. Um, it's and, and a lot of restaurants I try to, to, to go to my favorite restaurants and get takeaways just so that it gives them the ability to survive because the whole fabric of, of my Amsterdam is that um, there's a lot of independent people having businesses here. And one of the beautiful things about walking through other shop lanes is that there's a lot of independent shops here as well. It's not like the, the UK and probably like in, in the US where every single street has the same kind of shops. There's a lot of different shops here and you want that fabric to remain. So I try and do my best to support it. So. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. I, I don't mind it. Um, I mean, yes, you obviously lost the international element here. Um, there was a creep through in Amsterdam, which I didn't notice coming from the UK of that Amsterdam was getting progressively busier and busier and busier and busier and busier. And, busier and it actually was annoying for a lot of true Amsterdamers that have been here for many, many years. And they would use the delightful phrase, cut tourist, which basically means cunt tourist. Um, and you now see a lot of people that would even say that in business going, shit, we need these people around because they're providing us with money. 
So, yeah, I mean, like the last few months, there were hardly any tourists here, of course, um, but people were still coming from Germany, landlocked countries were coming from, uh, from Belgium, from France, and there were a few people from, from England as well, but not so many. And I have to say, it was actually quite pleasurable having less tourists to dodge around. Um, but we'll, we'll see what's going to happen. I mean, this is going to be around for a while, I think. How's your personal attention sort of shifted in focus over the last eight months, whether like personally or, or professionally? Well, the beautiful thing is about not traveling is you have to spend more time with yourself and less time with fatigue and getting over fatigue and building it back up so you can go back out on the road again. You actually have to really spend time with yourself. So, you know, when, when, when this first came through, I decided that actually I'm exhausted and I'm going to give myself finally the time to recover because this is not going to disappear. No matter how much work I am going to do for a few months, it's not going to provide me with gigs or appearances. Um, and I have enough other things going on in my life to still do things, but I decided that I'm just going to give in to this and take it as a gift. Uh, and the gift is to recover. I believe I had Corona before this had happened. I had pneumonia for the first time. Um, and I was really hit sideways by it. I had like the most severest um, fevers that I ever had since I was a child. And I still remember the dreams I had when I had those fevers when I had a child. I remember I was actually a pilot flying a jacket potato uh, against the Luftwaffe. Uh, that's how weird my dreams were when I was a kid. And I was getting those kind of weird dreams uh, when I had this pneumonia. So uh i didn't give myself enough time to get over it and i thought actually you know what 30 odd 30 plus years on the road can't go on the road this is a time to recuperate and that's what i did for quite a few months i recuperated it was a happy coincidence that the weather was amazing as well for march i'm not sure if the coincidence went hand in hand with the lack of airplanes in the air or not uh but it seemed to be um, a good coincidence and I just took it off and, and relaxed because I wasn't going to go into the studio with a tired mind. Um, you know, like I always, I always use Billy Bragg as an example. So within like one or two weeks of, of the lockdown, listening to BBC radio, Billy Bragg had already penned an incredibly emotional song about what was going on. And some people seem to have the key in their souls, like shit is really hitting the fan right now. I'm going to make music. And then I was reading some other cool people's feeds where people were saying like, do not beat yourself up if you're not feeling inspired right now. You don't have to feel inspired as an artist when this stuff is going on. And I think it's very important to do, take stock of things like that and not actually have this whole guilt feeling of like, well, I don't feel inspired. I should feel inspired. I've been given this time. I should be using it. No, it doesn't work like that, at least for me. So there's never been like a big gap. And it sounds like for you, that recuperation was something you, you needed. Um, Massively so. How do you work with that unknown element though? So there is this unknown, you know, you said before, you think this will be going on for another few months. Um, how do you work with that? As, a, as an artist, how do, you, how do you work with the unknown, the space? Uh, I don't know how that, I don't know if that you can actually prescribe that to an artist mentality or not. Um, I think as a person, you have your own tools to deal with things. And, I, um, and as a person, I grew up in not poverty in the UK, but I didn't have the easiest of times. And 
we grew up uh well i grew up in in a time where um you know there was the uh the winter of discontent um where uh it was going wilson heath wilson um and a lot of discontent in the uk blackouts being sent home from school early because there was not enough coal to provide electricity in the uk um and and poverty and also when i when i left home i left home very very young didn't have any money so i also have poverty so those things have definitely shaped me up in how to deal with not catastrophe but um being sideswiped from normal life you 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 sort of have a little bit of ammunition from your past life that you can draw upon and go well okay life hasn't been so easy in those environments and i think now for for the younger generation where life has been a little bit easier it's more of a a slap um so as a person i found that i could be quite again pragmatic on this i sort of expected uh i expected a really big crash anyway because everything was unsustainable um and the crash came but it came in a way that i didn't expect but it still came and um, i thought okay this is how we deal with it and i was getting exceptionally fed up with business techno and all the bullshit that happens behind it all the political games that were happening behind it and the fake artistry uh, that was going on the um fake virtual signaling that was going on how a lot of um the people the the newer people were not being led by their own morals but were being led by a think tank of other people thinking what morals they should present and how to present them so i was fatigued from that as well so actually um having a few months off from that was actually pretty cool so um but then you know you start to internalize and i'd already been shifting into photography for a while so i mean obviously you're talking to me as an artist as someone that um you know as someone to do with music but i've been lucky enough to have other artistic uh, endeavors that i could get deep into and sadly but luckily i i was going into photography and i was really enjoying that but that also stopped dead for me because my business model for that was also based around music so that had gone but i just managed to score like a cover of billboard magazine for example um without me being on the cover but actually taking the shots and really really enjoying that so i decided that i was actually going to go out and learn more about photography myself self teach myself as best i can so i was doing that and the weather was amazing for that and then uh i started having more the urge to go into the studio more so my my uh, fatigue had gone um and so i started going to the studio more and actually doing more engineering things um so actually the physical things that a studio needs to have done to it to make it operational in a way that makes sense for you and i've been already started to rebuild my studio around a new computer at the beginning of this year anyway and i just went into that and i started spending more time in the studio just doing physical things not creative things and then watching videos and then eventually started being creative i just allowed myself to to fall into a flow that felt comfortable and to try to defeat the whole uh, modus operandi of the guilt mechanism that's been so prevalent within many artists and actually try to push that away and so far it seems to have worked I'm curious about the engineering side. I'd love to talk about photography as well a little later if we have time. But on the engineering side, do you feel that sort of exercising a different part of your brain or a different 
urge in you when you're going and doing that work, that kind of work in the studio? The engineering side, like the physical engineering, not the actual engineering of a track, but the physical mm, engineering yeah. side is a great procrastination tool. It's fantastic. It's like, well, what can I do to make this better? AKA, let's not deal with the creative side. And actually I had like a probably two months of, of incredible uh, deluded procrastination that I could feed through being uh, engineering things within the studio. But it also serves a purpose. It gets you more comfortable being in that environment. And, you know, because I, I don't physically play music, I program music and I have to be in the mood for that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was really enjoying that, that whole thing of like, well, if I do this and move this here, move that there, get the computer uh, in this sort of framework. And, and it's, it really has paid off because I, I did a, 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 um, a musical piece uh, where I feature a violinist and there's a lot going on. I mean, serious amount, but I've got my core structure, my DSP structure within the computer. It's really happy right now. So actually, even though it was technically procrastination, it's allowing the future to build on, on, on what you're doing. So that's what I was doing, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about that project. It's with Mathilde Marsal. I hope I've pronounced her name correctly. Um, and I always call her Mathilde because <laughs> I can't pronounce it properly. And she goes, Mathilde, no, it's Mathilde. A muscle, yeah. So I'm curious about that. It's maybe not the most obvious combination. Um, can you can you sort of explain a bit about how that how that came about and, and maybe a couple of insights into the kind of work you you two are doing together? So um, three or four years ago, uh, a sort of mutual friend introduced us together, and this person said, "You have to work together. You're going to be good." And I kept it on mind. And I've been asked to do variations for France de, um, uh, for a TV program uh, a few times. And they wanted me to work with incredible people, but I knew that I wouldn't have any chemistry with them. I just knew it just wasn't possible. And I said, I want to work with this person. They said, no, c'est not possible. And so I was like, okay, it's not possible. And then they'd ask me the next year and I go, but I still want to work with this person. They go, no, you have to work with this person or this person or this person. And I was like, I know they're accomplished musicians. I'm not belittling what they are, but I just know that I'm not going to have any musical chemistry with these people. I just know it. And so we left it again. And then they asked me again. I said, yes, but I must work with this person. And they said, okay, you can work with this person. And then she came over to Amsterdam quite a few times and uh, we worked together and I did the musical direction and I wanted it to be a homage of the first musical piece, uh, the, uh, the, the first piece of music that really inspired me in a techno way, and that was Gustav Holst, The Planet Suite. And so uh, I did that direction with that, and then Mathilde um, could have some spontaneity on top and do her thing, and then we worked together and that happened. And I was working with a new piece of software that was very stable for ages called Serato uh, Studio, just, just to come out like two weeks after or two weeks before I said yes to the project. And I worked with that. And then, of course, a week before Paris, it started to become really unstable, which has caused me a massive amount of stress. But actually, on the day, it was fine. And we did that in uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport, uh, alongside uh, Robert Hood and Femi Kuti as well, and some other artists that I um, sadly can't remember who they were this time, but they did amazing performances. Um, and so that happened. And it was like, wow, and that really happened. And it was a really emotional moment for me because uh i'm not deep into classical music but i have 
awareness of it and I actually did work in a classical music shop for a few years as, as a youngster. Um, so for me, this was like a real departure of where I, I'd been, but I wanted to be for ages because the Holland Symphony Orchestra back in 2010 or 11 wanted to work with me, but it just wasn't the right circumstance. And then I was offered to work with a massive symphony orchestra in Belgium, but they only gave me two months to put it together. And again, it wasn't the right circumstance, but this was the right bridge. And so we did that and it was a success, um, both emotionally and artistically, and also uh, from, from critique. And so much of a success that actually Le Grand Echequier, which is a program I had no idea of not being from France, but after subsequent um, uh, research found it was a massive cultural institution of almost 50 years, invited us on off the back of, of, of Gustav Holst, um, the adaptation that, that I, I, I drove through. And I was really surprised. So that's how I was in Paris a few weeks ago performing with an orchestra on, on television. What uh, were a couple of the biggest surprises for you about getting into that world, you know, working with collaborate uh, with classical musicians rather than, as you say, programming music? Um, sadly, I only had 20 minutes rehearsal with the orchestra um, on the same day of the actual uh, thing. So I'm not sure, but I can tell you from being backstage at that event was that um, the ego that was there was deserved ego and wasn't in your face ego it was confidence ego of they know their world and they own it and respectful and it was lovely to be backstage hearing people um do their like last minute adjustments rehearsals um muscle movement to get and you just hear people playing piano at phenomenal speeds uh, you hear opera singers like and then their partners, friends who happen to be in the room, just laughing at their way that they're doing weird things with their voices and everyone just being totally relaxed. And then seeing this opera singer, like just all of a sudden, like, okay, I'm done. Just walking straight to the stage, just like in just performance beast mode and watching on, on the, the screen that was backstage in, in the, in the dressing room, watching like someone do Eric Starte, uh, Think she's a Georgian performer, uh, do Eric Sate, and just the delicateness of the way she was playing the piano and the feel was just so stunning. And of course, I was running, what is a heathen like me doing at an event like this, really? Um, and the first electronic artist to ever be invited on there of from 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 you know clubbing world. It was like, wow, what am I doing here? You know, but yeah, it's, it's, it was interesting, but it was it was wonderful. And, you know, I have worked with the BBC many times in different contexts, uh, normally radio, and the professionality of these people at the BBC, that are the tech, I mean, I love techie people. Um, the professionality was so insane and the professionality of the people that did variations <coughs> and also the professionality of people that did the Le Grand Echeque was so up there and it was like, wow, I really want to work with these kind of people all the time, if possible. Yeah, I'm curious what you say about professional environments like that one, because I've heard you talk before about uh, professional environments like when you've been a pilot and working with air traffic control, that feels like a very professional environment. And not a fully licensed sorry, I want to put, put in there, <laughs> uh, because that makes me sound like John Travolta. I was learning at the time. 
as a learner pilot, just to be clear, just to caveat it. Yeah. But that idea of the those professional environments, I'm curious when it comes to your live performance. Um, you've also said that you don't tend to prepare your DJ sets and prefer to be instinctual. No, you know, right. th and th this conversation, we you said I'd rather be instinctual. I don't want to know the questions in advance. But I wonder what what makes a professional environment for you when you're when you're performing, whether that's before, during, or after. What are the kind of conditions that tend to bring out the best oh, for you? It really, it really depends. Um, it really, really depends. I mean, I've I've been fortunate enough to sort of cross different artistic um, genres and see how people work. So obviously, working as a subject with certain photographers, seeing how they work and the professionality they expect from their assistants working in radio in different stations um like i um i sometimes do my show live I remember going to places <laughs> sometimes do my show live from 2fm and island for example and working with those people there um so every environment has a different kind of professionality of course um so you know working at say for like uh, john peel sessions with made of l with some incredible engineers and you can just sit back and you can talk to them deeply about everything. I love the nerd talk. Um, so you just get different environments of various professionality. Of course, sometimes you turn out to a club and there is absolutely no professionality whatsoever in that environment. And yet you have to continue to do what you have to do. And then sometimes you go to a festival and the environment of that festival is so professional. Uh, everything is, uh, really top notch um, with production. Um, and then sometimes you turn up at a festival and everything is covered in mud and you can have such a great time because it's it's real. Uh, so professionality is, is, is a hard thing to want in every single situation. And obviously DJing is pretty easy. It's not a difficult thing. I mean, I've been doing it for 30 years. Um, there's no point rehearsing. There's no point preparing, um, but also, you know, in, in certain circumstances, like, I mean, like I still remember playing a set at uh, the Detroit uh, Movement Festival, um, where one record deck was uh, down here, another one was up here on a crate, the speakers were on fire, they were on fire, literally on fire. And I was thinking, this is like a fucking amazing set. So you take what you can from every situation. I wanted to ask you about consistency as well. Um, something I've always noticed with, with your touring is that it always felt to me that you were like remarkably consistent. Um, and you've also had the same agent for a long time. Like I, I think yeah. in today's world, that's quite rare. What do you think's made that relationship last and what's helped with you remaining so consistent? Well, so you're talking about Marsha. Um, Marsha is the longest female relationship I've ever had. Probably because we don't live together. That's always the joke that I say. Um, and she's very well regarded and liked in the industry. Um, she's not one of these business techno agents that uh, demand ridiculous things for their artists. Um, she is a human being in a world where there's a lot of fakery. And so, and we've had our ups and downs, like all relationships, you know, I'd say like, maybe eight years ago we had a difficult period and uh we got through it and we've never signed any agreement um i've often found that people that really force agreements onto you um in a, in a mutual relationship because an asian artist is a mutual relationship 
if they force an agreement on you, then it's basically because they don't have faith in themselves um, as someone that's the right person for working together. And they want a, a divorce agreement, basically, so that if you decide to divorce, you get fucked. Um, so with Marsha, we never had an agreement. I remember meeting Marsha outside um, Turnmills, Clerkenwell Road. She was also always a cheeky little fucker, though, to be fair, you know. Um, but I like that. She, you know, the fact that she has true stories of punk, I like that. I like the fact that, you know, she knows people from the Buzzcocks, uh, uh, Sonic Youth, I think, um, and had a cat called Bananas. And uh, yeah, I mean, see pictures of her at the FNR in, in, um, in, uh, in, uh, in the, I always say Amsterdam, I actually mean the Netherlands because I'm just so Amsterdam centric. Uh, in the Netherlands, and you see pictures of her. And in fact, one of the pictures of her with like a Mohican was one of the pictures out of my phone every time she rung. It would be like that picture from her because she's she's cool. She she has a passion for music as well. So consistency is really important if you can get it. But you also have to not be consistent if the situation is not right because that's something I've also done wrongly too is I've stayed in certain circumstance just out of loyalty when it really wasn't the right thing to do. So you have to learn from that. Um, For a long period. I've had to be self-supportive because, I mean, like, from, from my family perspective, I've never had any interest of anything that I've ever done. Um, I've never had any um, pride or support. Um, my father, before he died, like three months before he died, had a, a cover um, that I managed to get for an English magazine in his hand, and he started to realise, sadly, um that uh you know there's something to be proud of maybe perhaps and he sort of expressed it but i was a bit angry at the time and it took many years to put that aside so i've never had any support so i've always had to be self-supportive um uh and that's maybe made me consistent i'm not sure you touched on punk uh a couple of times there um, I know that like punk bands like The Damned have been like a big part of your life for a yeah. long time. Uh, what what does punk mean to you? What is it when you say the word punk? What does that conjure? Well, up? let me tell you what punk doesn't mean to me. Punk doesn't mean to me Johnny Rotten. Okay, I just want to be really clear on that. Um, I mean, there's Public Image Limited, some incredible tracks, um, but you know it was comedy punk. It wasn't punk, and the fact that the guy supports Trump and all Brexit and all that shit, um, that's not punk for me. Punk for me is the fact that the damned are still together, still touring, even through their ups and downs, and are still fucking incredible musicians in their own right. Um, punk to me is the UK subs, it's the ruts, it's John Peel. It is people that have consistently, um, as, as your, your favorite word from, from the last thing, consistently presented an ethos that they have adhered to without struggle. And that is what I like about punk. It's being uh, aware of society, being aware of politics, being aware of your own position within that, and just being very present and um, being adult, actually, ironically, being adult in the fact that you can really see the world for what it is and you stand up against what you believe is wrong. I wonder how that links to techno 
and you've mentioned the word the sort of term business techno a couple of times um i meant firstly maybe you could exp just expand on what that what you see that term to mean and and the relationship between you know punk and, and techno because i feel like they're sort of two very sort of separate maybe worlds that are opening well, what up. i will say i mean i think i think business techno has been quite well explained by myself many many times and people can research it and to actually spend five minutes talking to you uh in brooklyn right now is a sort of a bit of a waste of time explaining uh business techno i'd rather talk about other things and actually say that expanding upon punk and what what techno is to me i will say this that a lot of the people that are actually from the uk people uh, like surgeon people like uh mark broom people like ben sims people like luke slater they kept pure they've had maybe a few moments of dilly-dallying within some of their own um, uh, heartfelt influences and maybe they didn't sit comfortably sometimes very occasionally but musically absolutely consistent never sold out never sold out and that makes me very proud um, I'm not often proud of British things but I will say that a lot of the British contingent of techno artists have uh, people like Regis have been very pure to their own sound and did not sell out um but like i said i think maybe eight years ago when i was doing some interviews that the edm bubble will burst and the edm bubble management style will infect techno and that has happened quite dramatically over the past five or six years and then the money that came in from sfx polluted some of the good brands that were actually uh, independent and doing the right thing and then everything became only about business um trying to pretend to be credible and you know even even the alternative top 100 now figures a lot of business techno people a lot of play grave people it's it's mostly about money now and of course everyone deserves to be paid and, and you know if you have a talent there's no reason why you shouldn't be paid for that talent but if you then put money as the main objective above everything else, then you're not an artist, you're a commodity. And you're commoditizing what you came up through. And I think that makes everything a little bit tragic. I'm curious what you think needs to change coming out of you know, this, this period. You know, it's a reset of sorts, I suppose. And you know, whether it pertains to what you just talked about or more broadly, what, what in, this, what in the, the, the scene or the world that you operate in, what do you think needs to change? What concerns me here is that if the reset is fast, there's going to be a, uh, I think it was, oh God, who's that horrible politician uh, that was sitting with loads of them, of course, uh, sitting with Boris, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, I think, or Moog or Mogg or, or Bog or whatever. Um, toffee, toffee knows Git. Um, so him, I think his father wrote a book saying if there's blood, there's money to be made, something like that. So if the reset is really, really fast, which of course any reset right now will seem welcome, but if it happens next year, say May, June, you'll find that a lot of people will consolidate the market, take over the independent venues and actually make the scene even more commercial than what it has been, which it's been going towards massively. So, so you're going to find promoters that have had money in their pockets, um, basically waiting for knockdown prices of cult venues and buying them out and then destroying any credibility, of, any possibility of credibility coming through the scene in the next five years. 
if the reset is long and judging by this apparent vaccine thing that's all of a sudden come out after Donald Trump has lost the election, after um, Dominic Cummings has left um, number 10 and all of a sudden Brexit is looking a bit weird and now there's a vaccine and blah, blah, blah. So if the vaccine comes out and it's effective and say it works, um, then I don't know if it takes the year extra that they're saying it's going to take, then there's a chance that actually the reset will be a good reset because you're going to lose a lot of the detritus that the scene has got. Um, you're going to lose a lot of the interest. There's going to be a, a new younger generation coming through that will invent that, their own new sound. I mean, if you think about how long techno has been around for compared to say, uh, like the short blip of the Beatles in there when they were making music and how long that lasted afterwards and how long techno has been around. I mean, techno has been around for 30 odd years now, which is a remarkable achievement as, as has house music. But say this takes longer than everyone thinks, maybe another year or two, then you're going to find people are going to be doing their own thing. They're going to be inventing something new. And I think that's quite interesting. And I think it's going to get rid of some of the politics of the music scene, some of the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, corruption. There's a lot of corruption in this scene. And they will just have nice retirement, some of them. And the corruption will come up again, but it will give a chance for a new scene to come up with without the the politics, at least for a while being. That's what I hope for, actually. But I'm not sure. It's it's hard to say. I wanted to touch on that that younger generation you mentioned, like new generation. What what are some of the common making mistakes that you see younger artists make as they find their way, either as DJs or producers or, or creatives more generally? Let's talk about it backwards. So let's talk about the younger generation now. What they're doing is, whilst they might be effective and financially well off because of decisions their management are making, they're not an artist. Again, they're a commodity. So, you know, and some of the artist splits that I hear some of these um, new DJs have are quite horrendous towards the male management. So that's a mistake. Um, maybe they're not aware of that someone has asked to do a high profile um, uh, charity gig that benefits other people and that their management have actually asked on their behalf for 20,000 euros for a charity gig. Maybe they're not aware of these things. Um, I'm not sure, but they, they're going to make mistakes just as much as people like me make mistakes, like signing great records uh, and then getting paid nothing for it. Um, everyone has to make mistakes, I suppose, to get through to a point where you understand the industry. And even if you have an amazing manager at the beginning, then you might have made a mistake with that manager as well, where you have a musical direction that you'd love to go to, but you can't because your manager's pointing you in another more financially secure direction. Maybe you can't explore who you are as an artist. Um, but, you know, mistakes are always part of being an artist, I think. Can you touch on a couple of maybe mistakes or failures that you've you've had that have actually set you up for success later down the line, even if maybe you didn't realise wow. what they were at the time? <laughs> Getting canned off hip-hop jams for playing Acid House. <laughs> um, 
getting five from roller discos to play. Is that canned off as in quite literally cans thrown at you? Yeah, with red stripe, yeah. yeah. Red stripe cans. Um, Big mistakes at the time that left me quite sad, but actually were the right things to do. So, you know, you can look back on those and you can think that's quite a funny thing. Uh, As I say, signing records that you didn't make any money from at all because you weren't accounted to properly. But at the same time, it bolstered your, in the same way that Spotify does now, it bolsters your presence and enables you, if you have another talent, which I was lucky enough that I could DJ, but if you have another talent, you can take advantage of and you can actually go, well, okay, perhaps I didn't earn what I should have earned from there, but at least it enabled me to become a name and then I could actually DJ, which is also a passion. So, yeah. I kind of want to link a couple of the previous things together, actually. Um, you mentioned Spotify and then also Younger Artists. Um, your radio show, White Noise, is close. I think it's close to 800 episodes now, not far off. Um, there's a lot of music in there from a lot of unknown or upcoming producers. Um, but my, my first question on the radio show is like, what brings you back to radio again and again? What is it that's such a draw for you? Okay, imagine a young, happy Dave, right? Because I was happy for a little while when I was a child um, until everything really went, went wrong. But Happy Dave would be sitting in his tinfoil, not because I was worried about being abducted by space invaders, a tinfoil bedroom because it reflected off the emergency light that I stole from my father's car that I could pretend was a disco light. And I would record radio back then, uh, but the adverts, and I would put the adverts in between the records that I used to like and make my own radio show. I used to love doing that. So that's how it all started. And then, of course, uh, listening to people like John Peel, um also i think it's mike allen who was like a hip-hop guy um and then of course the hip-hop djs as well uh called dj uh herc that sort of pushed me all towards being a dj but a radio dj was something i don't know it all started off with kenny everett i suppose and um and and local radio and just wanting to do radio it just was something i don't know just like I know good music and I want to play it to you because you're not listening to good music and you probably don't know about this. So I feel it's my duty to present this to you as an eight year old. Yeah. And obviously Adam and the ants was probably quite well represented by other people at the time, but I felt that you don't know this Adam and the ants track or UK subs track or Ram jam, black Betty, whatever. It didn't matter. I just wanted to present music and not do too much talking, which I'm doing a lot of now, um, but just let the music do itself. And actually, White Noise is a progression from another radio show that I did called Technology. And so I had about three or 400 episodes of Technology. And then I stopped to record Devil's Advocate because I couldn't do both at the same time. And then I started off doing White Noise. Um, And for me, it's really, really important because, well, let me actually tell you how it happened. First of all, I got asked to do a radio show by VPRO over here in the Netherlands. They asked me, would I be interested in doing a radio show? Because I heard the stuff that I did on Radio One. I heard the stuff that I did uh, on Studio Brussels. And so they asked me and I thought about it. And I thought, actually, the time is right, I'm gonna do it. So I started doing it for VPRO, uh, 3FM over here and continued doing it. And it's important because I'm not doing this as a label to present everyone on my label so I can make more money as a, as, as a, a label manager. I'm doing this just purely for the beauty of the fact that I really believe in the music that I'm playing. And also it's a very important thing to do because 
again, structure is, is important because every single week, even now I get two to 300 promos every single week. And I don't listen to every second of every promo because that wouldn't be possible, but I listen to every promo that makes sense. And I did that also because it enabled me to start finding a structure of how to put records in new records into my DJ sets when I'm in the clubs. So I had that double purpose of actually being going through all the promos, working them out, what's, what's going to go into my DJ sets and, and stuff. But also there's so much good electro coming out. And I also do another radio show called The Saga, which is alternative. And again, 2FM asked me to do this and it'd been on my mind for a while. And I, I said, okay, well, let's do it once a month, see what happens. And then the lockdown happened. I said, well, can I do it once every fortnight? And I said, yeah, no problem. Uh, I just enjoy putting music together, creating some sort of mood and yeah, I mean, of course I could do an old school techno set all the time or an old school house set, but I have so much music that I listen to that's outside of what maybe people would expect from me because I adore and love music. I love what it tells me. I refound, I'm going to play on Saga 22, I think. I refound another track that I heard for the first time uh, maybe two years ago. And it just made me cry. It just brought out such emotion. And that's what I love about the power of music. It brings out emotion all the time. It touches something in a way that conversation doesn't. And it's important to represent this music and give it a chance to breathe. And hopefully my name will give a little bit more of a chance to breathe this music that's not being featured in other people's radio shows. And that's why I do it. I'm curious what some of the changes you maybe made to your you know the way you approach the work whether it's radio or djing live or your photography work what are a couple of the changes you've made in the last few years that have made the, the practice and the work better well technology always leads uh always holds you back as well but it also leads so you follow the technology especially uh, when you switch from analog to digital then technology really shapes things and I was even shaping some of the technology with some of the uh, Japanese manufacturers a few years back. So technology changes things, but photography was a real eye-opener. I think a lot of the gifts that I've been given actually ironically did come from my father. So photography was a passion of my father, uh, which I sort of resented at the time because I'd end up having to carry all these lenses and it'd be taking so long taking photos and not living the moment. I sort of resented that but also hi-fi came from my father as well. So all this technology leads things. And what I liked was like, I did a remix of a, a punk group recently. I I'm not sure when it's gonna come out. And then I finished it. And then I went out with a friend and did photography. And I was like, I get the same feelings, but in an inverted way. So like, sometimes it's like a lot of hard work getting everything to mix together and then it works. And it's like, you feel like a kid. And then you take some photos and then all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you know, you've just got the money shot. So actually with, with music, because obviously I don't have the ability to write notes or play piano. So I struggle against the machines that are there to help me and I make the music and it's a lot of hard work. Um, and then it comes through and then you feel really happy that it all made sense. And then with photography, you get that happiness within a split second. It's like you see something you set the camera up in the way that you want to take the photo um, and you just get that shot. And then you look at it, it's like, <laughs> you just laugh at it. It's like, 
that's the shot. That's the money shot. That's the shot. I can go home now. You never do because you still take a few others. But that's the money. That's the shot. That's the one that works for me. That's that, it's beautiful. How the fuck did that happen? Fuck. It's cool. It's like I was lucky enough to take a photo of Anton Corbijn. I, I, I went through the back door uh, of, of where everyone was signing. I didn't want to jump the queue. I just wanted to get a vibe of what the color was and the lighting and everything was in there. And I just took one photo of him, just one. That was it. Because it's just about feeling the moment. I think photography for me is more about the moment. Making music is much more about the struggle making everything make some sort of weird mathematical sense. And DJing is, is the intuition. It's the being there, just feeling it and playing other people's music. I don't really like to play my music too much and making a story out of that, that the crowd relate to, but at the same time, not paying too much attention to the crowd because I don't want to be driven by people. I want to be driven by myself so that if people listen to me, they listen to me and then feeling the energy come around what you're creating from other people's music. That's, that's amazing. So they're all cool things. I really love that. Those, the way those three things are kind of related, but quite separate kind of feelings and drivers. Uh, I'm curious, I'm curious, like what are the, some of the skills you've built that have been most valuable for you in your work, skills you've developed or skills you've improved on. And we can obviously get into like talent versus skill, but when, you know, take it however you like, but the skill that you've developed that's been valuable. People avoiding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it freaks some people out. It's not meant to. Um, but I, I'm not the most talkative person backstage. I don't really want to be backstage. Believe it or not, I want to be there to do my thing and enjoy my thing. And everything else that comes around it is not my thing. The early days of being backstage were fun when you bump into people like David Morales and they would just be a complete gentleman to you and welcome you onto the scene they've already been part of and they help shape for you. Um, uh, but the backstage area has changed uh, quite a lot and they, they're not my environment. I am your classical introvert extrovert. So if you stick me in a situation where I'm not comfortable, I will close the fuck down. And people will take that really, because I have a face that can basically just kill a room if I wanted to. You know, I can actually just send out a mood, like stay the fuck away from me, please. And it unnerves people, but I do that for my own protection, my own energy. I have a certain amount of energy that I want to give out and that's really for my art and that hopefully people can understand what I'm doing. And if I lose some of the energy with people that I don't feel comfortable with, and I'm not giving them a chance to feel comfortable with, and I, I observe that too, but, I just, so I think people avoiding skills have been something that have really saved me. And also on purpose, not being too friendly with many people within the industry, because at some point someone always wants something from you or wants to hold you back. And I've seen that play out everywhere and I don't want to be part of those political games. So that's definitely a skill that I've, I, I developed from, from the very, very beginning, I think. Mm. Um, and it's made me very tricky for, for, for people to understand me, but I'm still in the industry some 35 years later. Um, a similar question, maybe, maybe there's a slightly different answer is what are some of people's misconceptions about you? That I'm not funny. I mean, for fuck's sake, I'm funny as fuck, man. You should see some of the shit that I, no, seriously. I mean, I, I, I yeah, it's like, you know, Dominic, um, uh, Cummings walking out someone that did like a, 
uh, uh, thing coming out with him with a bag of uh, box of dicks, you know, dildos and shit coming out there. And I just thought, oh, oh yeah, Dick and Dom. So I then <laughs> found the logo for Dick and Dom, put the logo for Dick and Dom on there. And I thought, no, I need something else like Carry On Cummings because it's a full of full of dicks. And I thought, you know, stuff. stuff I mean, it's very English. Um, it's very English. It takes people a long time to get my humour. Um, but people think I'm really like I'm, I'm very serious and not not funny. Uh, but actually, I'm funny as fuck. Really, you just have to know me. Um, and yeah. <laughs> Um, moody, uh, I would actually say that that's true a lot of the time because I was pushing myself way too hard and I don't do drugs. I don't do cocaine. I've never done coke in my life. And, uh, a lot of people use that as a, as a pick me up and I only have a finite amount of energy. And again, I close down because it makes me moody expending energy on, on something that I'm not there to do. So I can be moody. Um, but I don't think that's a misconception. I think that's the truth. But that comes down from a lot of not sleeping. And one of the beautiful things is now for the first time in 30 odd years is I've actually had a regular sleep pattern. And I found out that I'm not that moody in comparison to when I was exhausted. So uh, it's not a misconception, but it's a truth. But there, there's a reason for it. Um, other misconceptions? I don't know. Maybe you can tell me. I mean, people are scared of me. Um, I think... Uh, it was quite funny. Um, uh, an editor of Mixmag um, actually wrote a really lovely piece on me um, on his Facebook page for some reason. I don't know why. And then he said, but I think he could be caustic when taunted. And I thought, yeah, it's probably true. And I thought that's actually a really good name for a whiskey as well, caustic when taunted. <laughs> it, um, is. it is. But I, I've had to defend myself a lot because uh, as, as a kid, I wasn't defended at all. And I just learned to defend myself. And it's, it's, I have a big wall. I have a massive, massive wall that I don't really bring down. Last couple of things before we close up. Um, I just wondered if we, you could talk briefly about hard work versus luck. Um, I know in, in previous, I know you've talked about luck, you know, luck before, but also hard work in, in previous interviews. I wonder if you could kind of get into. Sure. It's, it's something that I, I used to teach at uh, school at SAE when I was teaching there. Um, because you can put in so much hard work and then get nothing out of it at all. And you can just be lucky and get everything when you haven't done any hard work. But the trick is, is to put hard work in to give you better odds of getting luck. Because I honestly believe if you don't put hard work in, you're not gonna trigger some lucky events. For example, uh, if we didn't put the hard work in for uh, variations with Gustav Holst, we wouldn't have been lucky with getting Le Grand Chequier. <clears throat> so you have to put in the, <clears throat> the hard work <clears throat> to really have a chance of luck. It's really important because it's very easy to be defeatist and go, well, if I don't do this hard work, then, you know, what's the, what's the point? What's the point of doing this energy? But you always have to put the energy in. It's, it's really, really important. Uh, given where you know the, the sort of strange times we're in right now, I'm I'm just curious. We touched on this a couple of times, but like, what what makes you hopeful right now? Whether in your own practice, your own work, or you know, in a, in a wider sense. What makes me hopeful right now is that some of my instinctual uh, comments uh, being correct seem to be coming to an end. That makes me hopeful because I instinctively said that everything should be locked down in February. <clears throat> and no one was listening, <clears throat> and then it was, and I was predicting how everything was going to work and how everything was going to happen, and 
those things happened. I also predicted that Trump would uh, win this election. I also predicted that there's going to be a chance, probably, and I actually named it as November the 10th in an interview, sometimes I'm weird like that, uh, that there was going to be uh, a Russian invasion in certain territories, maybe Ukraine, maybe Belarus. Um, I just felt that those were possibilities and they were about, they weren't just like fucked up from over there and brought here. I just thought, well, there's going to be an election. If Trump wins, then basically there's no real um, military power anymore that can counterbalance Russia. And the fact that Russia wasn't uh, punished over Crimea means that they can actually then quite effectively go to Belarus or Ukraine and not anyone really doing anything about it. And what gives me hope is that these things so far have not happened. So I'm happy that Trump has lost. I am worried about the US. I did predict in March to some American friends that there's going to be a civil war coming in the US. I really hope that I'm wrong on that. So what gives me hope? Um, what gives me hope now is that I'm that Trump has lost and that the US can now rejoin the Paris Accord for climate, um, uh, the climate crisis, and that it can be taken seriously again, uh, and probably taken seriously in the way that we can look at what the lack of planes have done for uh, climate, uh, the crisis, uh, the lack of flying around uh, for a few months. We can look at that. Uh, what else gives me hope? Um, that in political, un in unstable political times, that there normally is good music that comes out, especially the UK. That gives me a lot of hope that there's going to be some very vocal groups coming through with really, really politically uh, um, hardcore messages coming through finally that can hopefully retrain the next generation of kids coming through that what they're learning as history at school isn't necessarily correct and actually please listen to these people because you will learn more and try to create a better world for, for us. Um, but climate, the climate crisis has to be taken much more seriously. And I think with Biden in uh, power that at least the right movements going forward are going to happen there. I'm not sure. I, I, I do see that the world is in a, a serious quandary right now and that we have passed the tipping point and we need strong leadership. Um, I'm not saying Biden's the guy for that. But we need strong leadership to bring us, bring the ship around. Um, I hope that social media fucks off to a degree as well. And I hope, what gives me hope is that if this virus continues longer and the effect on the music industry, that despite the absolute pain it's going to cause many, many, many innocent people, from a musical perspective, that I hope that whatever comes through afterwards will be purer and less tainted by um, corporation and political mindfuck games, I hope. Before we wrap, is there anything else you want to share? Any thoughts, advice, questions, something maybe I haven't asked you that you wanted to get into? I said a hip hop, hip it, hip it, hip hip hop. You don't start wrong to the bam bam, but up to the boogie to the rim, to the boogie to beat. So before I rap, now what you hear is not a test because I'm rapping to the beat. <laughs> um, I don't know, really. It's uh, it's interesting times. It's definitely times I would have felt more comfortable that uh, reading from history book than actually living through. 
but this is our first world crisis, uh, really. Because um, I've always felt really lucky that we didn't live through a world war. We've had some really horrible uh, proxy wars, uh, which none of us agreed with, that were sane people. But we haven't had a world war. And I always felt lucky that this generation didn't have that world war. But the, the times we're going through now are definitely going to shape a lot of things in the future. And this has been a crisis that um, so far has been interesting, but uh, I do worry about smaller businesses, how they're going to survive. Yeah, I, I just hope that the small businesses survive this. Um, and I hope that a lot of the, I personally would actually make sure that people like um, uh, Amazon would have an emergency tax that the tax avoidance that these companies have allegedly been doing, I'm using allegedly on, on purpose, uh, the, the amount of tax avoidance that these companies have allegedly been doing should be penalized uh, by world governments and they should be taxed because there's no reason why these companies should have so much money, none whatsoever, uh, not at all. Um, they should be uh, putting that money back into hospitals, they should be putting that money back into uh, education, and um, yeah, they shouldn't be sing these single people, billions and billions and hundreds of billions. It doesn't make any sense at all, and this is what's wrong with the world, and that should change. And governments should stand up to the fact that you know they're shipping money around and not paying the fair amount of tax that they should do, and stand up to it, but. We're in a new world where, you know, the press barons used to be the ones that had all the power and now actually it's the tech companies that have all the power. And here we are talking through a tech company called Zoom. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Are you, I, I just wonder, are you hopeful maybe that there will be more of a sort of either democratization of these things or that there will be and or new kind of emerging groups of people creating, whether it's, whether it's open source technologies or new arts or you know, politically charged music. Is that is that something that you're hoping will come out of all this? I'm, well? I'm definitely hoping politically charged music comes out because that yeah. might cause a groundswell of, of, of uh, people becoming aware of what they're living in, uh, as opposed to some good documentaries that happen on Netflix about things, but actually don't point to anything that's going to change. And these people have already made their money. I think it'd be much better uh, if we actually do have a politically charged movement. But then for, for things really to change, there needs to be revolution, and revolution is not painless. Painless is not a word that ever goes next to revolution. And we have had relatively peaceful times. And if we head into a revolution where it looks like, you know, you're going to end up with, uh, in the US at least, I mean, I was talking to a journalist and they were saying it looks like, uh, you know, that the US might even balkanize at, the, at that present. Um, Revolution is going to be very, very painful for the world. Um, but is the current trajectory that we're all heading towards a good trajectory? Is it self-sustaining or is it uh, uh, taking away individuality? Uh, are we actually blindly heading towards singularity without even caring? Um, because, I mean, a lot of individuality has now departed. There isn't very much counterculture anymore within the music scenes. And I'm hoping that this next phase brings back counterculture because counterculture brings awareness. Awareness brings anger. Anger brings change. 
change can hopefully bring better for the world. But maybe I'm just an idealist. Hey, it's Howard again. Thanks for listening. Just wanted to let you know that you can access every episode of Under the Current, along with full show notes, links, and other resources at underthecurrentpodcast.com and also on our YouTube channel. Under the Current is produced by Wavetable. Learn more at wavetable.net. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time.